0: Hello world. Welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more. But I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and C-grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you wanna show your support, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and I hope you all are having a most happy Wednesday. Today, I thought I would do things a bit differently. Now, typically I post future episode topics to my social media followers, giving them a timeline of when each episode will air, and updating my pages with images and text relating to the topic, essentially giving my audience a taste of what this podcast is all about. This time around, though, I did not, and I'm announcing this episode the day it airs. Now, this day, May 19th, is an important day for all of us tutor geeks. On this day in 1536, so approximately 485 years ago, a wicked, wicked ginger murdered his wife before a live audience, and the next day, that same wicked ginger became engaged to another unlucky woman, making her his third wife. A woman who needs no introduction because we all know who she is, and you clicked on this episode knowing full well what was up, is Queen Anne Boleyn, the most happy wife of Henry VIII. Anne is a woman who has inspired millions throughout time, including yours truly, who has been discussed and analyzed by the world, a woman who is well known beyond the realm of historians. Anne was a politician, a philosopher, the smartest person in the room, a lover of all things French, a romantic, a patroness of the arts, Immortal and mythic. Though her life was cut far too short, Anne would be remembered by the world, as would her husband, Henry's crimes against her. One could expect a different tone to this episode than previous ones. Like, typically I do a ton of research prior to each episode when I have to, like, create a whole script and gather my... Gather my feet uh, sources and such, but with this one with Anne, I, like I've known Anne for years, and I've read about her, and I've watched her, and I listened to other interpretations of Anne, multiple interpretations of Anne, and like all things Tudor related. So, like this podcast or this episode is more or less just my thoughts on Anne Boleyn. A very intimate conversation I'm having with you about how I feel about The Infamous Queen. And I'll also be discussing, you know, media portrayals of Anne and definitely bringing up, like, a lot of film and a lot of books. So if you are looking for more something that is a bit more academically structured uh, about Anne Boleyn, well, this episode may not be your jam, and that's okay. I'm not offended. Like, there's so much out there that fits that academic bill of Anne available on all listening platforms. Like, she's a fascinating woman. You can take your pick. But this will be a fairly chill episode and more, more so my sentiments on the women mingled with, like, historical fact and perceptions. I'm going to give you guys a heads up. There's some construction happening around me and in my house. So if you hear, like, some, like, uh, like, kind of drill going on, well, I apologize. I will try to be as uh, articulate and loud as I can for this recording. With that said, grab your favorite beverage, be it tea or whiskey or big red. Sit back and get cozy and allow me to share my thoughts with you on Queen Anne Boleyn. I thought I would open up this episode with my first memory of Anne Boleyn, but After a while of trying to recall my past memories, I realized, oh my gosh, I have no idea when I first heard of her, which is totally sad, I know, and probably lost that memory from being addicted to Diet Coke, and Diet Coke brain is definitely a thing, and I don't want to stop. Uh, with my Diet Coke consumption. Um, but I do remember, funny thing, I do remember when I first heard about Henry VIII. And it was actually while watching um, watching the movie Ghost. And I think I first saw that movie when I was really little, like maybe seven or eight, you know, at an age where I shouldn't be watching Ghost. And I am anyways, because I'm unsupervised. But I I'm just recalling that scene where um, Patrick Swayze is taunting Whoopi Goldberg's character, and he's singing at the top of his lungs, I'm Henry VIII, I am, Henry VIII, I am, I am, and he's just, like, driving her nuts, and she's like, Shut up! Fine, I'll help you! And I was like, Henry VIII? Hmm, I wonder who that guy is. From that point on, I had heard of Henry VIII, like, Probably in history classes, like even in the most basic ass American education system, um, they still taught us about Henry VIII. Like he was still in our curriculum. And I'm not too sure why. And I had an uh, an English teacher who was obsessed with Queen Elizabeth the First, and we watched the Elizabeth movie in class one day, um, the one with Kate Blanchett and. Now that I think about it, actually, uh, that was probably, like, now that I really think about it and I'm actually verbalizing this, that was probably the first mention of Anne that I can recall. Uh, in the movie Elizabeth, while Elizabeth is being interrogated by her sister, um, her sister Mary's men, uh, for being a Protestant and accusing her of plotting to murder Mary, uh, one of the men, they mention her mother, and uh, Kate's Elizabeth says, I don't know what the big deal is between Catholic and Protestant, and one of the men interrupts her and says, well, it killed your mother. And there's another scene um, shortly after that one where Queen Mary mentions that whore Anne Boleyn, and while in another scene praising her father for cutting off her head while Elizabeth is still in the room. Now, Where to begin with this trauma? Uh, To start, there's nothing wrong with being a whore. Let's not slut shame or, or sex worker shame anyone here. Like, it's patriarchal and it's gross. Secondly, girl, your own father didn't let you see your own mother when she was dying. So you never got to see your mother or say that you loved her. I mean, this guy, your dad, who you're like praising, he isn't fit to shine your shoes. Like, calm down. I think my initial interest was focused on Elizabeth and Henry VIII, and while I learned more about them, I definitely wanted to know more about Henry's wives and what the fuck happened there. Uh, Anne was just the second wife, as mentioned in the movie, and that Henry VIII song that Patrick Swayze sang off-key mentioned something about a widow next door. So who were these other women? I'm not going to explore all six women in this episode though, but I will be mentioning a couple of them as they play a big role in Anne's story. Let me give you a bit of history about Anne's early years. So Anne was born in 1501, though some historians speculate that it was 1507. Personally speaking though, I think it was 1501. Anne was possibly a cancer, which this is brand new information to me. I have to give a shout out to Beheaded Podcast for their episode on Anne in which they state she was born in July. So our girl was likely a cancer crab. Thanks so much for that info, ladies, and be sure to give their podcast a listen. It's a lot of fun. As I've stated in past episodes, jotting down a girl's birthday just was not that important. Even if that girl was a princess, like shit gets lost or famines happen, or no one bothers to remember. A whole spectrum of reasons. I do wish, though, that we had specifics on people's birthdays, such as place and time of birth. Then we could do, like, detailed birth charts on these folks and, like, really get down to the nitty-gritty of who they really were. Anne was born to Thomas Boleyn, a prominent diplomat who spoke a ton of languages and was definitely a social climber. And her mother was Elizabeth Howard. The Howard family is a big, noble household in England and has been around since 1483. They're still kicking it, and jumping back to my last episode on Empress Matilda, the Howards own um, Arundel castle and have for the last 400 years. And if you listen to the last episode, Arundel Castle was um, it was the castle Matilda stayed at with her stepmother for a minute before continuing with her campaign for the English throne. Anne had two other siblings and was likely the middle child. So Mary Boleyn was the oldest and George was the youngest. And she may have had two other siblings and they were either stillborns or they died in infancy, I'm not too sure. Anne spent her infancy living in Norfolk, but moved to Hever Castle when her father Thomas inherited it in 1505. Hever Castle still stands today and is one of the most visited spots in England, known to many as Anne Boleyn's childhood home. I have yet to see this. I've only been to England one time, and it's definitely on my bucket list. Like I have to see it before, before I die or before the world melts. Like whichever one comes first, I need to see it. Anne was maid of honour or lady in waiting to Margaret of Austria around fifteen fourteen, and the age to be sent away as a lady in waiting was typically twelve or thirteen, which is why I don't think Anne was born in fifteen oh seven, because if she was, she would have only been seven around that time, and I don't to me it doesn't make sense, but Margaret would refer to Anne often as La Petite Boleyn. This could be because she was younger than most ladies-in-waiting, or perhaps Anne was just a tiny girl. Uh, She reported to the English nobleman that the little girl was so presentable and so pleasant, considering her youthful age, that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you to me. Anne would later become maid of honor, Uh, or Lady in Waiting. I'm really not too sure the difference between Maid of Honor or Lady in Waiting. I always say Lady in Waiting, so bear with me, guys. I think it's pretty much the same thing. But she became Maid of Honor to Queen Mary of France, who was Henry VIII's sister, uh, Mary Tudor. And she was to marry the crustiest old French king for a minute, and Anne and her sister Mary went to her court. Mary was sent home early for having sexual relations with the King of France, but Anne stayed for seven years in the court of Queen Claude. It was here that Anne just like totally immersed herself fully in French culture and just became French. Uh, In the Queen's household, she completed her study in French and developed interest in art, fashion, illuminated manuscripts, literature, music, poetry, and religious philosophy. On top of that, she also acquired knowledge of French culture, dance etiquette, literature, music, and poetry, and gained experience in flirtation and the game of courtly love. Eric Ives, an Anne Boleyn historian, says that Anne was made an acquaintance of King Francis I's sister, uh, Marguerite de see if I remember how to say this, Marguerite de Navarre, a patron of humanists and reformers. Marguerite de Navarre was also an author in her own right, and her works included elements of Christian mysticism and reform that verged on heresy, though she was protected by her status as the French king's beloved sister. She or her circle may have encouraged Anne's interest in religious reform as well as in poetry and in literature. Francis I was actually a really big fan of Italian art, and he was such a big fan that he invited Leonardo da Vinci uh, to his court while Anne Boleyn was still very much present in the French court. So it's very likely that Anne Boleyn met with Leonardo da Vinci, which I think is super cool because I would love to know what they talked about. And there's no way Anne Boleyn wouldn't have talked to Leonardo da Vinci, okay? Like, there's no way. She loved artists, and she was super into art and super into conversation and flirtations and everything and just being her charming self. Uh, So yeah, Anne definitely met Leonardo da Vinci. I can't say his name. Leonardo da Vinci. Bada boom let's talk about her sister Mary Boleyn, for a minute. Historians believe it is likely that Mary had relations with Francis I. How consensual that was well, I don't really know. I mean if a king approaches you and wants to fuck, saying no could be complicated. You do not want to offend the king, but the act of sleeping with a nobleman's child, even if you are even if you are king, can be a risky game. There is a power dynamic to it and that's a bit unsettling. Nevertheless, enough people believed it happened. And because of that, Mary was sent home. And Mary gets this like really bad reputation of like being a slut or sleeping around or whatever. And as I said earlier, slut shaming is gross. Let's not do that. And, but really, you know, was Mary having a good time? Was she actually enjoying sex? Or were these powerful men just using her as they use so many other women? You know, like, let's, let's refrain from slut-shaming Mary Boleyn and maybe focus on the shitty behavior of these men. There's a scene in the TV series, uh, the Showtime series, The Tudors, and I think it's, like, early on, like, first season, maybe, like, the second or third episode, where uh, Francis I is talking to Henry VIII, uh Jonathan Rees-Meyers as Henry VIII, and he points out Mary Boleyn, and he's like, that's Mary. She's I refer to her as my English mare because I love to ride her. And Henry gets the idea in his head, and he's like, wow, well, I guess I can fuck her too. And he, like, invites Mary back to his room, and he's like, show me what they taught you in France. And she basically gives him oral sex. Well, not basically, she does. And I mean, these men are just gross, and I'm like, y'all, uh, shameless, Blech. Anne's mainland European education ended in 1521, when her father summoned her back to England. She sailed from Calais in January 1522. Now, I kind of wish we knew what Anne's feelings were at this time, about whether she was, like, really sad to leave the French court, or if she was eager to leave, like, I don't know, because I'm kind of surprised she didn't just marry a French man, but whatever. I guess we'll never know. Um, Anne was recalled back to marry her Irish cousin, James Butler, but for a whole slew of political reasons, they were not married. I'm not too sure how much Anne would have even liked living in Ireland versus having been in France. Like, no shade to Ireland. Like, I think Ireland's beautiful but I think the public Tudor perception of it was that it was still very much a wild, untamed land. Anne and Mary became uh, maids of honor to Queen Catherine, which was Henry's first wife, and Mary had just been married off to a man named William Carey. Well, shortly after the wedding, Mary became mistress to Henry VIII. He even named a shift a ship after her, the Mary Rose. And there's actually a well disputed rumor, and historians don't really know what to make of it, but uh, there's the rumor that one or both of Mary's children were fathered by Henry. In The Other Boleyn Girl, book by Philippa Gregory, uh, Mary gives Henry a daughter and a son, and after their daughter is born, he visits the child and tells her he wants a boy from her the next time. In the film, The Other Boleyn Girl, Mary gives birth to a son, but right before Henry has a chance to meet the child, Anne makes him choose a bastard child or the chance of having a legitimate heir with her. And, of course, he chooses Anne, and it's this big, big deal, big scene. What do I think is the case? Well, timeline-wise of when Mary's first child, Catherine, was born, and when Henry and her were lovers is is on par. It's the same timeline. And I I think Catherine was Henry's child, and the second child, well, I'm not too sure, but... I could see Henry not acknowledging Catherine for a number of reasons, Uh, possibly because she was a girl. So why would he? Or the fact that shortly after their liaison ended, he started uh, sniffing around Anne's corner. And I guess it would look really bad if he acknowledged a child with Mary Boleyn when he's trying to marry Anne Boleyn. But to me, I think Catherine is for sure Henry's child on the sheer fact that she um, she had a daughter named uh, Lettuce Nollies, I think that's how you say it, Lettuce, okay, uh, who if you look at her portrait, she bears a striking resemblance to Elizabeth I, and perhaps this is because they're both cousins, uh, but Mary and Anne didn't look alike at all, like Mary had blonde hair, And, um, you know, was pale and, and as we all know, had long, dark hair and was olive toned. Um, but Elizabeth shared features of both her father and her mother. So, um, when you look at Lettuce Nollies' portrait, you're just like, uh, that looks a hell of a lot like Elizabeth. So I think, you know, I think Catherine was definitely Henry's child. On the topic of Anne's appearance, Anne exerted a powerful charm on those who met her, though opinions differed on her attractiveness. The Venetian diarist uh, Marino Sanuto, who saw Anne when Henry VIII uh, met Francis I at Calais, Calais? I think it's Calais, in October 1532, described her as not one of the most not one of the handsomest women in the world. She is of middling stature, swarthy complexion, long neck, wide mouth, bosom not much raised, eyes which are black and beautiful. And Simon Grenet wrote to Martin Bucher in September 1531 that Anne was young, good-looking, of rather dark complexion. And Lancelot de Carle called her beautiful with an elegant figure and a Venetian in Paris in 1528 also reported that she was said to be beautiful. There are a few other accounts that describe Anne as being flat-chested, and I think that that's kind of like, why are you talking about her breast? But, you know, men talked about everything. Like, what else is new? Uh, And there's a scene in Wolf Hall, I I love the series Wolf Hall. I think Wolf Hall is a fantastic series. And if you haven't seen it, uh, I think it's like available through PBS on Prime. So definitely check it out if you haven't. And there's a scene in Wolf Hall where Thomas Cromwell is talking to uh, Mary Boleyn. And Mary talks about how, you know, she drives and drives Henry crazy. Like they don't consummate their relationship, but he lets... He uh, Anne lets Henry kiss her breast, and Thomas Cromwell is like, "Well, God, what the he- what the fuck does he say?" He's like, "Well, good luck if he can find them or something." And they like just both joke about her being flat chested. I'm like, okay, nice. I would say that of all the media portrayals of um of Anne, that Natalie Portman likely looked like looked the most like Anne, you know, same build as described, dark eyes with a lovely skin tone. And I loved how Anne in that book, in um, The Other Boleyn Girl and in the movie, The Other Boleyn Girl, described her sister Mary as my sister of milk and honey. The book and the movie of The Other Boleyn Girl are very, very different um, both are told though, from Mary's perspective, and Anne is portrayed as being very calculating and a bit of a deviant and She almost spoke in like this weird sneaky whisper, like even when I read it, I could just hear that you know that yeah, I can't even describe it. it's just kind of this like sneaky little tone, I guess, sneaky calculating tone, like very, very Slytherin-esque, kind of like a very villainy, like you'd imagine the villain almost like speaking that way. And in the book, I kind of got the impression that like Philippa Gregory just didn't really think that highly of Anne, and I'll touch more on that in a minute. Um, I do think casting-wise, Natalie Portman was a good fit for that written Anne, and Scarlett Johansson looks wise, well, she looks like Mary Boleyn. Anne is definitely perceived as wicked in The Other Boleyn Girl, and a motivation of hers is this, um, is Anne's affair with a rich nobleman named Henry Percy. And Anne and Henry were rumored to be in love in real life, and secretly became engaged. And that engagement was broken off, though, as Henry was legally, uh, engaged to another woman, and had been since they were teenagers. In real life, uh, Cardinal Wolsey played a part in ending that engagement, uh, something that Anne would never forget and would use as motivation to bring Wolsey down from grace. And in the movie, The Other Bullying Girl, though, um, it was Mary who snitched on Anne to their father, thus ruining Anne's happiness and making Anne seek to ruin Mary's joy. A part that I love in The Other Boleyn Girl. Now, granted, this is not the best movie. It's <laughs> it's entertaining for sure, and I would still watch it, but it was kind of a mess. Uh, kind of a flop indeed. Uh, but a scene I do love from it is uh, when uh, Queen Catherine is introduced to Mary and Anne, and is like, oh wow, two new ladies introduced by my husband. Like, Surely they must have some kind of gift or talents uh, implying that Henry just be bringing ladies into Catherine's audience so he can have access to them because he's gross. Um, so she asks Mary to sing and Mary begs her like, please don't make me sing, please. I can't do this. And Catherine insists and Catherine being queen. Well, Mary's got to do what she says. So Mary is just, Mary sings and she's God awful. And, Catherine just sits there with this like super disappointed and uh revealing look on her face and it's great. It's a great scene. Okay, now where am I in this history here? Oh. oh okay, come on, brain. Uh oh yes. Uh so Anne is actually in Henry and Catherine's court for a few years before Henry actually notices her. He's busy with her sister. We do know not. We do not know exactly when he first noticed her. Uh, in the Tudor series, Henry notices Anne during a play they both perform, and this play did actually happen. Anne made her debut at the Chateau Vert, uh, the Green Castle pageant, in honor of the imperial ambassadors on the 4th of March in 1522, I think, playing Perseverance, one of the characters in the play. There she took a part in an elaborate dance accompanying Henry's younger sister, Mary, uh, several other ladies of the court, and her own sister, and they all wore gowns of white satin and um, ooh, white satin embroidered with golden thread. Now in the Tudor series, the women are wearing like very revealing outfits with, like, tight bodices and bare arms. And in real life, uh, yeah, they probably were not like that at all. But Henry first sees, like, a stunning Natalie Dormer as Anne and is immediately taken with her. Like, no kidding, dude. It's Natalie Dormer. Like, who wouldn't be smitten? Now, I've read, actually, quite a bit of books about, uh, like the Tudor Age, and with Henry VIII in particular, and Anne Boleyn. And I'd have to say, though, out of all the books that I've read, my favorite one is probably uh, The Autobiography of Henry VIII by Margaret George. In this book, it's actually, it kind of starts out as, it it starts out post-Henry's death. So Henry had already passed away, and his fool, uh, Will Summers, is writing a letter to Henry VIII's illegitimate daughter, but she has no idea that Henry VIII is her dad, and so she's like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, I'm just gonna tell you everything. Like, I have his autobiography here. It wasn't called autobiography. I think it was, like, his journal. I have his journal here, and in it, he just describes all the details of his life. Now, I wish something like this existed, but if it did, it got destroyed or lost, whatever. But whatever. We don't have it. So he gives this journal to Henry the VIII's illegitimate daughter. And the book kind of just goes from there. And there's like notes in between each chapters from Will Summers uh, with his interpretation of the events. And it's just such an incredible book. It's a huge book. It's like 900 plus pages. And I remember taking it to work. Uh, I was reading it on the job, of course, uh, cause I'm such a good employee, but, um, I was taking it to work and all my employees or all my coworkers were just like, why are you reading a book that is like thicker than the Bible? And it's like, well, this is the best book ever. And it's really just the most incredibly detailed account of Henry VIII that I have read. And yes, it's historical fiction, but if you're familiar with Margaret George, like all of her books are just explicit detail. She has one on uh, Cleopatra that's also really fantastic, and Mary Queen of Scots, one on Elizabeth. just She really has the ability to just take you back to that time. And around the time that I started reading this book is probably when my tutor craze really started to just pop off. And the book starts um, after that introduction, the book starts with Henry as a toddler. And then it just describes his relationship with his mother. And before he became king, while he was still a prince, and when his brother died, and just very intimate details of him and his first marriage, uh, his marriage to Catherine. And it It's such a good book. If you haven't checked it out and you're like just as big of a geek about Tudor times as I am, please do yourself a favor and read it. In this book, the scene where Henry sees Anne for the first time is, hands down, my favorite representation of that encounter. Now allow me to read this passage for you. And then I saw her. I saw Anne. She was standing a little apart from her mother and her sister Mary. She wore a gown of yellow satin, and her black hair fell down over her bodice, thick and lustrous, and, I somehow knew, with a perfume of its own. Her face was long, with a pale cast, and her body slender. She was not beautiful. All the official ambassadorial dispatches all the puzzled letters, later written describing her, agree on that. She had nothing of the beauty I had come to expect of the court women, none of the light, plump prettiness that honeyed one's hours. She was wild, and dark, and strange, and my first awareness of her was that she was staring at me. As I looked back at her, sternly, she did not drop her eyes, as all good subjects are taught to do. Instead, she continued staring, and there was odd malice in her eyes. I felt unreasoning fear, and then something else. Henry starts to pursue Anne, and I want to say it's, um, 1526, or at least that, uh, That is when it was made public around that time, and he began sending her gifts, in which she would return and tell him she's either unworthy of them, or that she cannot accept them because he's a married man. He even asks her to become his official mistress, and that he won't take any other mistresses while she sees him. And she says that he insults her with this offer, and that she would rather not have her virginity ruined, or her reputation, which is the same thing, Um, and he writes her letters, like tons of love letters that surprisingly still exist today. I don't think we have any of hers though, like hers to him, as they were destroyed after she was murdered. In 1527, Anne and Henry announced that they are officially together, and that he is seeking an annulment. I don't think either Henry or Anne expected that the process of a divorce would take seven years but oh lord like I'm so impatient I definitely would not have stuck through that at all but I think at a certain point for Anne at least it was much too late to end it like ending it with Henry would have well ended her and her family and I do think like you know at a certain point there were just so many people involved with uh the annulment or, the king's great matter, and she couldn't back out, so she was really just at a certain point in it to win it. There is some historic debate over just exactly how involved Anne's father and uncle were in uh, the relationship between Henry and Anne. Like most depictions show them up to their own devices and scheming their own plans. In the Tudors, Anne is reading one of Henry's letters aloud to her father. And it's, it's a graphic one. Like, how embarrassing. I definitely wouldn't have shared that letter with either of my parents. Um, I'm pretty sure they were, in my opinion is, I'm pretty sure they were involved in the process. Like, just as they were involved in Mary becoming the king's mistress. Like, this was definitely, like, a part of their plan. Uh Thomas Boleyn was a social climber, and gaining the king's favor would definitely have been his jam and if he had if he had to use his daughters to his advantage like he would, I also just i really don't have a high opinion of the men of the Tudor court, so yeah, I think they were involved. In Anne of a Thousand Days, a 1969 film starring Richard Burton as Henry VIII and Genevieve Bujold as Anne, I'm probably saying that last name wrong, um, when Henry makes a, there's a scene when Henry makes a weak-ass attempt to seduce Anne, and Anne bluntly informs him of how she finds him, which is such a cool scene. I love it. I've heard what your courtiers say, and I've seen what you are. You're spoiled and vengeful and bloody. Your poetry is sour and your music is worse. You make love as you eat, with a good deal of noise and no subtlety. Ooh, I love it. Henry breaks the news to Catherine that he is seeking an annulment or a divorce and that they were never officially married because she was actually married to his brother Arthur who had passed away at 15 years old, and that in the eyes of God, they weren't married because she had laid with his brother. And of course, she's completely devastated by this. And by all accounts, like Catherine was just very distraught and shaken over this. And she insisted, she's like, hey, you fucking know, she didn't say fucking, I highly doubt she did, but, like, you know that I was a virgin when I laid with you. Like, you know that. And, you know, that wasn't enough for him. He had to completely embarrass her in front of the entire world by saying she was a liar and was fucked up. And, of course, his reasoning for why the marriage was invalid is because they didn't have an heir and that a woman who lay with her husband's brother, like that marriage would not, uh, produce children, but it did produce children. Like they had a daughter, Mary, who, uh, was the only child who survived infancy. And other than that, I feel like Catherine maybe had seven stillborns or still. Or like half of them were stillborns and like one of them was like an actual infant. Uh, Henry was an infant, but I think he passed away like two months. And so he was kind of just like, I feel like they both had this like similar grief over the loss of like numerous children, but rather than kind of like work through their grief, he just became cruel to her. And that's very obvious in his, like, behavior towards her, especially, like, in the later years of their marriage. Some might wonder if Henry ever loved Catherine. And in the beginning, I think, I think he perhaps loved the idea of her more than he loved her. Uh, She was a dowager princess of his father's court for seven years, and... After Arthur passed away unexpectedly. Uh, a lot was riding on this alliance with Spain, and Catherine being a daughter of Spain was the key piece to that alliance. And when Henry Seventh passed away, Henry kept his promise that he had made as a child, I think around the age of 14, uh, to marry Catherine. It was a valiant and noble move on his part that he kept his word and followed through. Initially, they were described as being happy for sure. Though, as I stated, I think the grief, uh, as I stated earlier, I think the grief of losing many children over time weighed heavily on both of them. Like, Catherine's own grief must have been indescribable, and her only solace was found in Catholicism, and Henry found solace in other women. Henry put Cardinal Wolsey in charge of the king's great matter— So, in other words, his divorce, and multiple petitions were sent to the Pope, which were turned down, and the Pope was having his own drama, like, he was currently a a prisoner under Catherine's nephew, Charles V, uh, from a result of the sack of Rome, and I can't describe this without looking that shit up, but it was more or less like a series of battles uh, resulting in an occupied Rome, like, Could I be remembering that incorrectly even? Possibly. I just know sack of Rome, Charles V, Catherine's nephew. While this whole beef was going on, uh, Henry was full on courting Anne and making like a huge show of it. She would sit with him at dinner. They'd go hunting together. They would meet people together. Like they would meet ambassadors together. He would throw parties in her honor, just like full on dating in the Tudor court, like while he was still very much married to Catherine. Anne began to take her place by his side in policy and in matters of state, but not yet his bed. So for seven years, the couple supposedly did not have any sex. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, Don't like that. Never would do that. Never would agree to that. No. Henry gave Anne's family titles. He gave her titles and gifts. So, of course, like, Daddy Boleyn was like loving the situation. But this courtship was going on for such a long time that Anne was like continuously attacked by the public, as the public as the public had loved Catherine, like they adored her and felt that Anne was ultimately responsible for tearing them apart. And I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, like, Henry left Catherine a very long time ago. This was just, like, the first time that he was actually following through with a divorce. Like, being legally bound to one another is not the same as being a present caring partner. And Anne was really getting the uh, the aggression of folks, that the aggression that folks felt for Henry taken out on her. Because, of course, you can't attack the king, so you attack a woman. Uh, She was reported to have uh, been dining at a restaurant near the River Thames when an angry mob of women broke out uh, into the restaurant wanting to attack her. She barely escaped. And if she had not, I don't know if Anne would have been killed, but Anne definitely would have gotten her ass beat if, you know, if she was caught. I should also mention the reason why I think she was born in 1501 versus 1507 is because like... Probably halfway through that seven years, Anne was getting increasingly nervous and uh, agitated about her uh, fertility, and she was just, you know, at a time when, like, women usually had their, or girls had their first kid at, like, 16, 15 years old, uh, Anne was approaching 30, and, you know, her her fertility window was, like, closing in, so she's like, oh my gosh, like, I'm spending all this time with this guy, and who knows if even when we get married, like, I'll be able to even produce a child. And granted, I guess she could have still had those feelings if she was born in 1507, but I think the pressure of, you know, needing to produce an heir was really, like, mounting on her during that courtship. Both Henry and Anne, more or less, were like, Cardinal Wolsey is to blame for us not getting um, for you not being allowed to divorce Catherine, so uh, Anne is like reported saying at like a dinner with like guests and stuff that uh, the dishonor that walsley brought to the realm uh, should have resulted in him losing his head, and Wolsey probably would have been executed um, eventually, but he did he did pass away before he was murdered. So uh, you know, at least he didn't lose his head, but I think it was definitely on the chopping block and Yeah. It could have been worse. He could have been hung, drawn, and quartered, but at least he wasn't, I guess, I don't know. About two years um two years prior to their marriage, uh Henry and Anne's marriage, that is when Catherine was finally banished. And I think it was about fifteen 15- 31, that she finally was, was banished from court. And honestly, I don't know why it really took that long for her to be banished or not necessarily banished, but for her to leave. Uh, like she was pretty unwilling to leave. And I understand that like her reputation and her identity as Queen of England was being very threatened here. But girl, did you have to stay in close proximity with your shitty husband and his new girlfriend like you you are a rich woman you know that like you couldn't have stayed at any other manor now I don't know if that's because Henry was like controlling what she did still um I know he was controlling like correspondence between her and her own daughter or their own daughter but I don't know I would have personally really hated just being that in that close of proximity with my shitty husband and his girlfriend. In The Constant Princess by uh, Philippa Gregory, I believe that book ends with Catherine's trial, like the beginning of Catherine's trial, where she has to basically stand in front of a court of all men and declare that she was a virgin, in fact, when she met Henry. And I think if I remember correctly, Catherine did plead to Henry in the in the courtroom and she made her statement and after she made her statement she just up and left uh she didn't want to be interrogated anymore and I respect that like he did not need to make this a public thing like to make it a public thing he was essentially embarrassing her he was trying to ruin her which is that's Henry's jam like Henry loves to ruin people including his wives. In the Star series, uh, the Spanish princess, which follows, uh, Catherine's early years. So when she came to England as a, uh, I think she was about 15 as a teenager when she came to England and it follows her life up until, uh, she separates from, from Henry willingly, but in that she separates from Henry willingly. And that's where the. The series ends. She's like, look, you know, you're gonna have your life, I'm gonna have my life, like, do your thing, but just remember, like, I'm always gonna be your wife. And I don't know, like, Anne Boleyn is in that for like two seconds, and I don't know whose cousin they got to play Anne, but that girl's annoying. <laughs> um, I just I don't know, did not give off Anne vibes at all. She was just kind of awkward, but um, that series is really good if you if you're interested in uh Catherine's life. I think I think they did a really good job with that story. Is it like The Constant Princess book? No, it's not. But uh I think it's supposed to be like a combo of books. It's like The Constant Princess and then one about um Margaret Plantagenet and I thought one other, but uh I think they did a good job with it. I think they made they brought a lot of relevance to Catherine's story, and it's, it's interesting to watch. I like it. I liked it. I thought it was, like, the better of the star series of uh, Philippa Gregory's books. A historian I follow, Dr. Cat, who has a YouTube channel called uh, Reading the Past, asked her audience what they, what they thought of the Spanish princess as she had just finished the series. I commented that I liked it and I enjoyed seeing a diverse cast and how important it is to see, uh, diversity representation in period films and period, period series. Uh, like there's just, I didn't say this bit, but there's this real, I'm, you know, I'm going to say it. Uh, there's this real racist idea that Europe was completely white for centuries. And that's just, that's a bold, hateful lie, like completely untrue. And uh, I didn't say that part, but I did mention how in the series, I don't know why they did this, uh, but they included a scene with Christopher Columbus in which he talks to the teen Catherine, a teen Catherine, so he's like her mentor, about finding her own destiny. And let's be real here Columbus was a sack of shit with Spanish money who enslaved indigenous people. Like, that's just the facts. He was a terrible person. And he, you can, you see that in, like, his fucking writing, okay? Like, he's, there's no doubt about it. He's a, he's a shithead. And I support creative historical fiction, but not that. And someone so, someone got so, so mad at me in the comments uh, for saying that. Like, not Dr. Cat, but, like, some rando person was just like, I can't believe you'd come here with that woke shit. And is it woke shit I mean it's it's not like what like what the fuck like stop what are you doing what are you defending it's it's 2021 man like I don't know what to tell you if you still believe Columbus was like some magic explorer like I don't know read a book that's not written by some cis white male anyway had to rant for a minute about that After Catherine had left and was in full proxy queen mode and was creating an alliance with France. Henry gave her the title of, um, I think it's Marquess, Marquis of Pembroke, which is, um, or which was a Tudor title and only given to folks in close relation to royalty. By granting Anne this title, he made her of a rank where she could become queen. Um, Folks like to say that Anne was a commoner, uh, but she, not not really, you know, she was she was of mid-level nobility, but definitely not queen-level status, sort of similar to Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV. In 1532, Anne and Henry made their way to Calais. Calais? Calais. Calais. I don't know. I can never say that word. Uh, but they were wed in, they made their way to Calais, Calais. Wow, okay, guys, I'm just gonna call it Calais. And you know, if you're French, you can yell at me later. Um, but they made their way to Calais, and where they were given a small audience with Francis I. And at that moment, like Anne took that as her sign that, oh my gosh, we're gonna get hitched. It's gonna happen. I'm gonna be Queen of England. So they decided to secretly wed. And Anne, then, after secretly being wed, gave herself to Henry. And I, I feel like I keep mentioning the Tudor series, but I'm going to mention it again and probably mention it further. Uh, but in the Tudors, uh, there is a scene with Anne and Henry where Anne is like naked in a dark room, and Henry's naked too, and she's just lying on the bed, and it's like dark and sexily lit room, and she's like, "Now, put a son in me," and john henry smires gets in his full maximum sex machine mode and and they do it so it's like a big scene in the Tudors. whereas i think in wolf hall like it starts with henry and anne first fighting um about god knows what i think he was like mad at her because she was like flirting with somebody and he's like how dare you you're making like a fucking fool of me And they get into a big fight and then she's like, okay, well, I got to calm his ass down. And then she like has sex with him. And that's how that happens. In the film, The Other Boleyn Girl, well, it takes, it has quite a different take on um, what happened between Henry and Anne. Uh, In it, Henry becomes frustrated with Anne and accuses her of making him turn away a good woman, like his wife, Catherine and she says, like, hey, I didn't make you do anything, and then he proceeds to rape her, telling her he's tired of waiting. Now, I don't hate this representation of Henry, like, I don't think Henry was a man of sunshine and roses, uh, whether he actually raped someone, we don't know, but as King of England, anything is possible, and Henry the Eighth is a murderer, like, whether you like to admit it or not, like, he murdered two of his wives, and then, like, slaughtered how many other people within his realm? I don't know, much more. I think his number was a lot higher than Mary's, but yet like his daughter, Mary, like yet she gets the reputation of being bloody Mary and he's just a crazy fuck. And so it's not far fetched that one could assume that Henry was also a rapist. We don't know. We don't know. But interesting interpretation of that. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. representation of him so to me the scene kind of just showed like henry's general cruelty which we were all well aware of and i there afterwards natalie portman's anne asks mary how the king was with her like sexually and mary responds that well he was very gentle with her shortly after their wedding night anne is instantly pregnant Uh, she is crowned in westminster abbey while six months along in a big-ass coronation unlike any other queen consort anne was crowned with saint edward's crown which had previously been used uh, to only crown uh, monarchs historian alice hunt suggests that this was done because anne's pregnancy was visible by then and the child was presumed to be male Anne wore all white with her dark hair cascading down her front the public's reception was lukewarm. If you want a good jam to listen to to signify Anne's coronation, check out Wolf's Hall soundtrack and the title Anna Regina. The score was done by Debbie Wiseman, and it's such a good score, like one of my favorites. Fun facts coming at ya! So I'm going to give you a little bit of history on the on St Edward's crown. So St Edward's crown was uh, first recorded having been used for the coronation of Henry III in 1220 and it appears to be the same crown worn by Edward um Edward the Confessor so the St Edward's crown we see today is not what St Edward wore as the original crown was uh possibly destroyed or was destroyed in the English civil war when monarchy was temporarily uh deposed real troublemaker Oliver Cromwell regarded the crown as symbolic of the detestable rule of kings. Now, I get the saccade of monarchy. I completely get it. But I draw the line at destroying medieval art. And that is what this crown essentially was, was medieval art. Uh, the original crown itself lost favor um, after, the English, uh, after the English Reformation and the Church of England forbade the use of medieval relics. Therefore, I think the last person crowned with it was actually Anne Boleyn. She was a Protestant, Protestant reform was her jam, yet uh, with her encouraging Henry to break from Rome, she becomes the last to participate in this particular ceremony. Like a real hello goodbye if you ask me. The original crown, dare I say, sounds much cooler to me than the one we have today. Like the original was also referred to as uh, King Alfred's crown, and it was gold wirework set with small stones and two little bells, which sounds very on par with the Anglo-Saxon style, which I describe, which I would describe as minimal but so pretty and kind of earthy, like very earth, earthy elements to that. Uh, but some folks think that the the current Saint Edward's crown we have now is the um, the gold from it is from the original crown, but I don't know if there is any way to know for sure if that's true. And I, I think I saw the crown at the Jewel House at the Tower of London a couple of years ago. It's definitely an an impressive crown, like real gaudy as fuck, uh, with four hundred forty four semi precious stones. But eh, I like the original model better. Like the original model to me sounds sounds so old world old world and so pretty I just I wish we could see it I wish we had it massive celebrations were planned for the birth of Anne and Henry's child well for their son Henry was rumored to be boasting while Anne was giving birth he wasn't sure whether to name the child Henry or Edward there was even a joust tournament planned and well the couple's to the couple's disappointment their firstborn was not a boy but it was a girl Baby Elizabeth was born September 7th uh, in 1533, I believe. In all depictions of Anne's story, Anne is terrified to tell Henry that she gave birth to a girl. Like, he was no doubt disappointed, but he is reported to have told her, well, we're both young and we will have sons, and then then he left. Henry cancels the jousting tournament, and a non-enthusiastic announcement follows of a girl's birth. In Margaret George's autobiography of Henry VIII, Henry can no longer wait to see their child and burst into the room as soon as he hears his child cry. He has a terrible thought about how hideous women look post-birth, referring to Anne as a drowned rat. And then he picks Elizabeth up and is initially excited because she's all bundled up like he can't tell that she's a girl. And she looks just like his and Catherine's only born male son, Henry. And he's like, oh my God, she looks just like Henry. She looks, or he's like, oh my God, he looks just like Henry. He looks like Henry. And when the physician tells him the child's a girl, well, Henry is immediately just disgusted. And he doesn't say it, but he's he's thinking it and he's disgusted. And he calls her like a whimpery cunt and... It's really gross. Like, that's so bad that your first thought of your child is would be that. Ugh. Anne had three other pregnancies resulting in miscarriage. I believe that the cause for these were most mostly a result of the insurmountable stress and anxiety she was under. Folks really like to estimate, underestimate the effect stress can play on the body. Even today, we're just like, hey man, just self-care, right? Nah, it's a bit more complicated than that. Like, Anne had promised Henry a son for seven years, and now that they were officially together and she could not produce a full-term son, well, she was not having a good time. Uh, And the people of England still really disliked her. For half of their marriage, Catherine was still very much alive and posed a threat. And while she was still alive, Henry could potentially leave Anne with nothing and return to her Anne is noted as saying she wished Catherine and Mary dead. She probably did say this. Anne was cruel to Catherine and Mary, but not much worse than Henry himself. When Catherine did pass away in isolation far away from her only surviving child, Anne and Henry Henry wore yellow and held a celebration. Yellow was the color of mourning in Spain, and many historians see this move as an insult on Catherine's memory. It was not long after Catherine's passing that Henry's eyes began to wander again. He started flirtations with Milk Toast, Jane Seymour, and the Seymour family was totally stoked for this new interest in their family. Anne grew increasingly jealous of Henry's new infatuation, and the two of them constantly fought. In The Tudors, Anne sees Jane, um, Jane and Henry kissing, and becomes enraged and strikes him. Later in that episode, Anne miscarries a son. Henry tells her that she killed the child, and she blames the loss of the child on the stress his infidelity caused her. In real life, Anne lost their last child after Henry got into a very bad jousting accident, where he was unconscious for uh, half an hour, uh, maybe longer. Oh lord, the whole court was like freaking the fuck out. Like, a horse fell on top of their king, and he was not moving. Scary times indeed. Like, people were scrambling to get shit done in the event of his death. If the Bolins had power there, um, if the Boleyns had power or they held power, there was a chance that Mary, Catherine's daughter, could be harmed. Uh, they had to officially make Elizabeth their heir, yada, 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 like, panic all around. Nothing was planned. And when Anne, heard, when Anne had heard the news that he might be dead, she collapsed and shortly after gave birth to a stillborn son. I love how Wolf Hall uh, depicts the scene um, or predicts that moment when Henry becomes unconscious. Like all these men are just like standing around him and like scrambling and like talking amongst amongst each other. And some of them are like screaming in the King's ear, like wake up, wake up as if like that's going to do anything like your King has a concussion. Uh, he, he's not waking up. Um, but they all just are in full blown panic. It's a great scene. And, Thomas Cromwell is like, has anyone tried anything? Has anyone checked his breath? And he checks his breath and he's still breathing. And then like a last ditch effort, like Thomas Cromwell starts like beating Henry's chest and then Henry wakes up and everyone's like, oh, thank God. A lot of people think that Henry VIII's personality changed after the jousting accident, that the part of Henry's brain that was injured suffered irreparable damage and changed him. And I'm not a neurologist, uh, so I don't know, but I I don't know if I completely agree that the accident changed him. Uh, Prior to the accident, Henry was capable of cruelties, Uh, but I do think what happened um, as a result of that accident is that Henry suffered from chronic pain, which without modern day surgery or painkillers, like I'm sure it just made him super miserable. Uh, Therefore, I think it it just added further agitation to his already volatile temper. And it also disabled him because it was after this accident where he started to gain weight and he couldn't really partake in the activities he enjoyed doing before. So that last child, that last uh, pregnancy that ended, that was it. Like Henry didn't visit Anne really after that. And he was looking for ways to get out. He wasn't sure how he could get out. If he could just divorce her. Um, being the head of church of state, Maybe he could have just done that. I, But I think it was a bit more complicated than that. I don't think. Even after he made himself head of state. I don't think he had that power just yet. He was still pretty new at this thing. Uh, so he had to find a way to just ultimately ruin Anne and ruin Anne's reputation so he went after her in like the worst way possible it was not enough that Henry embarrassed Anne like he had to ruin her and it wasn't enough that Henry had to embarrass Catherine like he also had to ruin Catherine like this was just his pattern this is what he did so I mean what's the worst thing you can say about a woman to discredit her well You can bring up her sex life. Um, And they did. They did it then and they do it now. So uh, Henry started to gather some informants to basically squeal on Anne and report any sort of like uh, deviant sexual behavior. I do think also, now that I really think about it, that um, there was like a time issue. Like even if he petitioned for a divorce from Anne there's still, like, a matter of, like, how long would it take for that divorce to actually go through. Uh, With Catherine, it took seven years, but that was because, you know, a whole lot of Pope and Catholicism was a part of that, and it had never been done before. Uh, But still, I feel like if Henry had pursued a divorce, it would have, there was that risk that it could have taken a lot longer, or Yeah. So time was really an issue here. Like he just didn't want to be married to Anne. So he needed to find a solution to end it immediately. And Jane Seymour was, you know, playing the same game as Anne was. Like she wasn't sexual with the king. She was holding out. She said, I couldn't marry or she couldn't marry um, unless or she couldn't have sex unless she was married. And so it was a time issue, like Henry just wanted Anne gone the quickest way possible. Anne's biographer Eric Ives and most other historians believe that her fall and execution were primarily engineered by her former ally, Thomas Cromwell. This is not to say that the responsibility should be removed from Henry, but uh, Cromwell was definitely like perceptive to what Henry wanted and had his own ambitions. Thomas Cromwell also had like total Slytherin energy like I think Anne was a Slytherin and Thomas Cromwell was definitely a Slytherin like he made his way up in the world from an abusive working uh from an abusive working-class household to the side of the king and no one let him forget where he came from. It was also not enough that Anne's reputation was to be destroyed but that her entire family also just needed to be destroyed and removed from Henry's sight. So these men were the ones that were accused of sleeping with Anne. Flemish musician uh, Mark Smeaton was tortured until he confessed. And he was the only one who was tortured because, well, he was just a musician, so I guess you can, you know, torture a poor person, but not a noble person. Um, also, courtiers William Breton and Henry Norris, Uh, Francis Weston, who worked in the King's Privy Chamber, Uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt, who was a poet and family friend, and um, our family friend of the Bolins. And I think he, you know, I think Sir Thomas Wyatt actually was in real life in love with Anne. And there's plenty of historical evidence that supports this theory. Uh, Thomas Wyatt was released sometime after the trials, and this could be because he had a friendship with Thomas Cromwell, or that there just was nothing to charge him with. Uh, in the Showtime Tudor series, uh, when they alert Thomas Wyatt that he will be let go, he yells to the guards that he's the only one who's guilty of loving her. It should also be noted that Thomas Wyatt may have actually been at the tower and are he was at the tower, but that he might have witnessed Anne Boleyn's execution. Sir Richard Page was also accused of sleeping with Anne, but I believe he had an ally by and was thus let go, which is very surprising to me. I mean, so much, so much of this trial was made up bullshit, so I'm surprised they let him go at all and just, I'm surprised they let Thomas Wyatt go, but I guess what can you do? The last man accused was her own brother, Anne's own brother, George, who was accused of incest and treason. Extra gross. In the other Boleyn girl book, uh, this is where I think Philippa Gregory really doesn't have a high opinion of Anne. Um, in that book, uh, there's a scene where it's Mary and George and Anne, and George is like, kind of, it. George is like, boldly hitting on Anne and she's kind of letting it happen and they share a kiss like a full-on French kiss and it makes Mary super uncomfortable and so it's it's very heavily implied that Anne in that book that Anne and George have a sexual relationship which that's nasty I'm not too sure why Philippa Gregory went that route probably for like a drama element but that's nasty And I think in the movie, if I remember correctly, like Anne loses a child in her sleep and she doesn't alert the ladies, but she's like, uh, she does alert her brother, George and Mary. And she's like, I need to, I can't tell the king, like, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Like, this is my last chance. And in a very desperate effort to get pregnant again, Anne suggests that her and George sleep together. And they don't, neither of them go through it. They try to, they try to drink wine and see what happens. But uh, George is sobbing and he's like, I can't do it. And she's like, I can't either. Personally, I don't think there was any evidence that they ever were intimate with each other. I think like during the interrogations uh, that occurred um, between Thomas Cromwell and like Anne's ladies, uh, like, there was a lot of, like, psychological torture with that. Like, just confess, confess, say anything. And, uh, you know, one of them might have said, well, one time I saw her, like, hug her brother George. And then they just, like, took that and went with it. But uh, most people agree, most historians agree, like, there's nothing concrete there. So, just more bullshit. By the treason act of Edward III, adultery on the part of a queen was a form of treason because of the Im- implications for the succession to the throne. Sort of makes sense. Uh, for which the penalty was hanging, drawing, and quartering for a man, and burning alive for a woman. Mm. But the accusations, and essentially that of an incestuous adultery, were also designed to impugn her moral character. Uh, the other form of treason alleged against her will was that Uh, that of plotting the king's death with her lovers so that she might later marry Henry Norris. And there's no evidence of her plotting shit. So there's that. Henry Norris was accused of being in love with Anne. Uh, During one moment, he came to visit uh, Anne's rooms or whatnot, Uh, but he was there to visit uh, one of her ladies-in-waiting. And Anne made the joke that oh, you act like you're here for, I think it was uh, Madge Shelton. You act like you're here for Madge, but really, I think you're here for me. I think you're in love with me. And apparently he got, like, really upset about that and left. So there's a chance that he could have had a crush on Anne. But that doesn't mean that anything happened or that, yeah, that doesn't mean anything happened. Like, calm down, guys. Sort of lucky for these guys, but they were not hung, drawn, and quartered. Rather than do that, again, Henry wanted everything done really quickly. So, and that's a process. That's a big, that's a big show. So rather than doing that, like on May 17th, five of the men accused uh, were murdered, including her brother, George, and they were beheaded one after another. Still a disgusting display, but I guess at least they weren't disemboweled. Sure. Okay. Anne was also not to be burned alive. Rather, Henry had other plans for her. He hired a French swordsman to come for Anne's execution and to chop off her head in the style, in the French style. And some people see this as like, uh, I I don't want to say token of appreciation, but I can't think of another term for it. Um, but some people see this as kind of like a French sendoff for Anne, like a courtesy, like he has he's having her killed in this kind of like in this formal French presentation. And no matter how you shape it up, uh, it's still murder. He still cut off her fucking head. Anne had a trial, but it was clearly just, like, a bullshit one, and it was just for show. Like, they had they had to have a trial so it didn't look too bad, so it was just kind of a formality. But they, it was a jury of 27 men, I believe, who, uh, you know, read her crimes against her, and she pled not guilty, but sorry, Anne, like, you don't have a say in what's going on here. So uh, they all voted guilty, including uh, Anne's one time betrothed, Henry Percy, who sat on the jury and um, when the verdict was announced, he collapsed and had to be carried from the courtroom. Like, sorry, dude, I don't feel bad for you. Like you said guilty. You voted with all these men and you were like, yeah, let's make her guilty. So I don't feel sorry for you. Like, fuck you. On the morning of may 19th william kingston the constable of the tower reported that anne seemed very happy and ready to be done with life he had written that this morning she sent for me that i might be with her at such a time as she received the good lord to the intent i should hear her speak as touching her innocency always to be clear and in the writing of this she sent for me and at my coming she said mr kingston I shall. I hear I shall die afore noon, and I am very sorry. Therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time and past my pain. I told her it should be no pain; it was so little. And then she said, "I heard the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck." And then she put her hands about it, laughing heartily. I have seen many men and also women executed, and that they have been in great sorrow. And to my knowledge, this lady has much joy in death. Sir, her almoner is continually with her and had been since two o'clock after midnight. And just so you know, an almoner is basically a chaplain or a church official. So it's interesting that Anne had a church official with her uh, throughout the night, like yeah, she was probably confessing everything to him and no doubt he provided some sort of comfort for her. And I don't know if I would describe her mood as being a happy one. Uh, I feel like it's just probably a very jumble of emotions and maybe just, you know, her nerves are just, you know, sometimes when you get nervous, you laugh. Sometimes when you get like confused, you laugh, that sort of thing. It's, I don't think it was genuine happiness at all. The poem, "O Death Rock Me Asleep, is generally believed to have been authored by Anne and reveals that she may have hoped death would end her suffering. Now, I should say that this poem could have been written by George Boleyn. It was written by one of the Boleyns we know. So let's go ahead and assume it was Anne, uh, just because we're talking about Anne. And so let me go ahead and read that poem for you now. O death, rock me asleep, bring me the quiet rest. Let pass my weary guiltless ghost, out of my careful breast. Toll on the passing bell, ring out the doleful kneel. Let thy sound my death tell, death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. My pains who can express, alas, they are so strong. My dollar will not suffer strength, my life for too prolong. Toll on, thou passing bell, ring out my doleful kneel, let thy sound my death tell, death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. Alone in prison strong, I await my destiny, woe worth this cruel hap that I should taste this misery. Toll on, thou passing bell, let thy sound my death tell, death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. Farewell, my pleasures past. Welcome my present pain. I feel my torments so increase that life cannot remain. Cease now, thou passing bell, rung is my doleful kneel for the sound my death dole doth tell death doth draw nigh. There is no remedy. Anne was executed on a Friday from May nineteenth, but it was a Friday and she wore a gray damask gown that was trimmed with fur, and she was accompanied by two female attendants. Anne had made her final walk from the queen's house to the scaffold, where she climbed the scaffold and made a short speech to the crowd. Good Christian people, I come hither to die, for according to the law and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accu- accused and condemned to die. But I pray, God, save the king, and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good and gentle and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle it for, my, will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best, and thus I take my leave of the world and of you, and I heartily desire you all pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. Now, even if you hate the king, even if you think he's a piece of shit, and he is, uh, you definitely did not say that at your execution, and yeah, you're going to be dead. So who cares? But like, uh, there's, there is that risk that those words will be recorded and your family will basically suffer for years after your death because you were like, fuck the King. So I think Anne, you know, said positive things about Henry because she had her daughter to think about. She had Elizabeth and at the time of her death, Elizabeth was just two and a half years old. So She, you know, she did that kind of just to save her because who knows what was going to happen to her Anne had no idea. Uh, So I I do think that was, you know, in Elizabeth's best interest why she did that. Anne's ladies helped her remove her uh, headdress and blindfolded her. She knelt upright in the French style of executions. Her final prayer consisted of her repeating continually, Jésus, receive my soul. O oh Lord God, have pity on my soul. It's reported that the French swordsman yelled, boy, fetch my sword, so that Anne would turn her head slightly, and thus the swordsman could strike her with one stroke, and so he could sever the neck, uh, the head from the neck, with one single stroke, and... It's supposedly, like, painless to do it that way. you still got a sword coming at you, so I'm sure she felt pain, however brief it was. In Margaret George's Henry VIII autobiography, um, Anne, the executioner, picks up Anne's severed head and holds it above the body, where the blindfold is somehow removed, and she's seen with her lips still moving, and she looks down at her body i don't know if that is true uh i have not read anything like that but uh the head does still twitch a bit after it is severed and i think you can still see a little bit like i think it's maybe like a couple of seconds but i i really hope that's not that was not her fate the execution was witnessed by thomas cromwell Charles Brandon, uh, which was Henry VIII's like BFF, uh, the King's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, and the Lord Mayor of London. Most of the King's council was also present. To me, I think Wolf Hall does the best job in presenting Anne Boleyn's execution. And after uh, Claire Foy's Anne Boleyn makes her speech, uh, she kneels down in the French execution style And her ladies go to remove her hood. And when they put on her blindfold, she winces. And the entire process, you can, like, she is standing still as much as possible, but she's clearly very nervous. And she starts touching her hair and fidgeting. And Thomas Cromwell in the audience is like, stop, put your arm down, put your arm down, put your arm down, put your arm down. And uh, she puts her arm down. And the Frenchman says, like, boy, fetch my sword in French don't make me say it in French because I can't. Um, but after the deed is done, you know, men try to approach her body and her women basically say like, no, we will handle her body. She doesn't want men to touch her body. And I thought that was such an amazing touch because men basically put her in the eye of the King and men were responsible for her downfall. So no, stay the fuck away from her body. Like, fuck off forever. And then the Tudors after Anne Boleyn is killed, like Henry is, that episode is really creepy because Henry has his like eye on like these two swans in his garden and he gets the brilliant idea to have one of the swans killed and cooked and presented to him. So that uh, season, it's like the end season two end I believe so that season two ends with Anne Boleyn being executed and then a feast is presented to Henry and earlier that day he had talked to Jane Seymour and was like tomorrow I'm gonna announce our engagement and it's just like you're you're a fucking asshole like you're the worst and I think in the other Boleyn girl what happened is like Natalie Portman's Uh, Anne Boleyn was just very, very distraught and like shaking the whole time. And Mary Boleyn is in the audience and she receives a letter from, from Henry. And she thinks that it's going to be Henry granting Anne her freedom. Like just telling her, hey, we're getting a divorce. I'm not going to murder you. Just kidding. Uh, But that's not what happens. And the letter basically says like, Mary, uh, please don't come back to court ever because you and your child, our child could be at risk. So Anne's going to die. Sorry, but you need to leave. And Anne's executed and you hear the bells toll or the cannons burst. I don't remember. And Henry's just seen like far away, but he hears it. So he knows the deed is done. Now in real life, I've heard a couple of different things. I've heard that her body was removed by her ladies-in-waiting and they they handled it um but then I've heard other things where Henry 8th didn't provide a coffin for Anne and he didn't provide like a designated burial spot for her so there was kind of this like scramble of what they should do with Anne's body and so I've heard that she was left on the scaffold for a while and like maybe a couple of hours while people in the tower and her ladies uh, scrambled to find something to put her in and they finally settled on like an old arrow box and she was um she was buried within the chapel of the tower and she was buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of saint peter ad vincula think I'm saying that correctly. Um, Her skeleton was identified during renovations of the chapel in 1876 during the reign of Queen Victoria. And now Anne's grave is uh, identified on the marble floor, which I'm kind of curious as to why possibly when um, her daughter Elizabeth became queen, why there wasn't really an effort to find her body and to give her a proper burial. Maybe there was, but it just never came, came to, came to a head. But I don't know, to me, that seems like something that you would prioritize as a daughter of, you know, somebody whose dad killed your mom. And it was after Anne's death where people just started to say a whole lot of shit about her, like, especially how she was deformed and she was accused of having a goiter. I think somebody actually said that she had horns. Uh, she was accused of having like a witch's mole, which is just like giant and hairy. And she was accused of having like a six finger. And like, basically they were just trying to make her sound like a freak show. And, um... But, you know, if she had any of those, I highly doubt Henry would have been as attracted to her as he was, as he was a very shallow man who expected the hottest women to love him. And let's see. And they also, like, accused her of being a, a witch, of course. I mean, they still do that. They're still, like, whatever. Like, she's probably just a witch. Um, They accused her of being a witch and how she, like, cast a spell over their sweet gentle lord king henry and his like and made him leave his precious catholic wife and that's not true guys like henry did all of that on his own and you know ain't nothing wrong with being a witch like (laughs) a lot of historical fiction you know takes those witch rumors and is like well anne probably was a witch and i think she was even mentioned on like the chilling adventures of sabrina as being a witch and she's mentioned within harry potter Uh, I don't think she's a witch in Harry Potter. I think she's actually, like, I think it's called, like, a squib. So, like, a non-magical person born to magical people? I don't recall. I do know she's a Slytherin. So, that is without a doubt. Now, there is some speculation about the spot in which Anne was executed. So, there is a marker. Today, there is a marker at the Tower of London that marks where they think Anne Boleyn was executed, along with her, um, her sibling George, and the other men, and also other people. I think um, Catherine Howard is on that list too. And it's possible that that's the spot, but it's also possible that it's not. Apparently, like around the time of Queen Victoria, she was really interested in the history of Anne Boleyn, and she had asked one of the guards, like, "Hey, where was Anne Boleyn?" executed. And it was just a young guard and he had no idea. And he was like, oh, I think right there and um, pointed to that spot. But it's likely if that wasn't the spot, it's likely like it's likely that the actual spot was maybe just a few feet away. I'd have to say my favorite presentation of Anne Boleyn thus far is Claire Foy's in Wolf Hall. She is charming like Anne and I love when she's just like spits out the fr- her French so effortlessly, like C'est Magnifique, and also her chemistry with Damien Lewis, who plays Henry VIII, is fantastic, who, by the way, of all the portrayals of Henry, to me, he looks the most like Henry. Like, prior to Henry's jousting accident, by all accounts, the guy was very good-looking, said to have inherited his looks from his mother, Elizabeth York's family. He was super tall and very athletic. And a lot of people like to refer to Henry as being fat and disgusting, and, you know, we don't have to body shame Henry to analyze and judge his behavior. Like, being fat was the least of Henry's problems. Like, he also gained that weight out of becoming immobile, which probably caused him to be depressed. I mean, he was in chronic pain and he was depressed. Still a dickhead, but all those things are true. Like, judge Henry for his actions, not his body. I am super looking forward to the Anne Boleyn miniseries starring uh, Jodie Turner-Smith, and the series follows the final months of Boleyn's life, her struggle with with Tudor England's patriarchal society, her desire to secure a future for her daughter Elizabeth, and the brutal reality of her failure to provide Henry with a male heir. Now, I think this series is airing in the UK first, um, and it should be airing, I think, at the end of this month if it hasn't already. Um, For the U.S., I don't know, but I hope we get it very, very soon. The three-part series, a psychological thriller counting down the panic-filled and cloistered final months of Boleyn's life, and the story is told through Anne's perspective. Created by the female-focused company Fable, the makers of the BAFTA-winning East London set film Rocks, Uh, The series aims to reset our understanding of Boleyn as a strong female figure fighting miscarriage and claims of adultery, rather than a maligned cliché of a temptress and a cheat. This is exactly what I've been waiting for for a very long time. Uh, I wanted a retelling of Anne's story through her perspective and to analyze the, uh, or an analysis of the psychological torture that she must have endured while being married to Henry. That is one thing I appreciated about The Spanish Princess. It was Catherine's perspective and showed her constant self-betrayal to appease Henry and how that just like, how it just slowly chipped away at the person she was. Unlike Spanish Princess, though, there are some real angry racists upset over the casting of Jodie Turner-Smith. I even had one of my earlier followers unfollow me after I posted a photo of Jody wearing the infamous signature bee necklace. The quickest way to catch a racist is to dress a non-white person in period clothing. Then they lose their damn minds. There's no reason why the role of Anne should be limited to just white actresses. Anne's identity was not based on her skin tone, and the story of Anne is much more complex than that. Like, Anne was more than what she looked like, and to me, an actress who can capture Anne's essence and can tell her story well is an actress worthy of praise. Jodie Turner-Smith gave a heartfelt and vulnerable performance in Queen and Slim, and I have no doubt in my mind that she will just totally rock this role. And I think I saw some trolls comparing the casting choice to casting a white man as Martin Luther King Jr., like... Oh my God. They're always like, well, how would you feel if we cast the white man as MLK? Like, LOL, at the, <laughs> at the first black man that these trolls mentioned is Martin Luther King Jr. Like, go fucking figure. And it's completely, utterly different. Martin Luther King Jr. was a civil rights leader fighting for equal rights for black Americans and was a woman who was murdered by her husband. Not the same thing. And I feel like it just goes beyond, like, the Anne Boleyn story. Like, I've seen people get just upset whenever they see any person of color in a period film, even if it's a fucking fantasy. Like, I remember seeing something where, like, a a person of color was cast in a role for King Arthur, like or like an Arthurian tale, I believe. And some person commented, and they're like, well, what's next, a Chinese Merlin? And I'm like, well, Merlin wasn't fucking real, so I guess he can be whatever the fuck he wants to be. He could be a girl. Shut up. Oh, gosh, now they're all coming back to me, because I, I think I recall somebody saying, well, I just don't think um, a person of color should play roles specifically for white people you know like I wouldn't cast a black woman to play Aphrodite or Maid Marian and I'm like neither there's a lot wrong with what you just said and I think you need to get off the internet please speak to somebody and don't even get me started on how much whitewashing has happened both in history and in film productions like has anyone seen Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's playing an Asian man? Like full on doing yellow face? I saw that movie once and I was like, yeah, that's enough of that. Um, or the whitening of Jesus Christ, like spoiler alert, Jesus was not a white Italian man with blue eyes. Mamma mia, that is a lie. But how many times have white actors been cast to play Jesus? Too many to count. Like, he was a Middle Eastern, super radical, and anti-establishment man. And both history, artist, and Hollywood make him, like, Anglo-white. And I don't hear anybody complaining uh, about that. I don't hear anybody complaining about white Jesus. But put a beautiful black woman in Tudor gowns and brains begin to melt. And I feel like I read an article a while ago. It was, like... Um it was an article that resurfaced but the project itself was uh like 20 years old so it was in talks about 20 years ago but it never it never was created where some Hollywood executives were talking about casting Julia Roberts to play Harriet Tubman Julia Roberts to play Harriet Tubman and their reasoning for it was well oh she's so hot right now and you know it's not like anyone will notice so, anybody mad about that? Anybody who's mad about Jodie being cast as Anne Boleyn mad about that? Mm, crickets. Claire Ridgway, the creator of Anne Boleyn Files and the Tudor Society, has shared many posts expressing her support and excitement for the new Jodie Turner Smith series, urging her fans to read the article that I'm about to share with you about the casting choice for Anne, and how any comments that are racist and cruel from her followers will be deleted, and those people will be blocked. Well, oh gosh, I feel bad for Claire, because, uh, you know, she's been posting updates about the story for a while in her excitement, and there's so many, like, just hateful shitheads, um, you know, expressing their dismay. After all of this time, they're still upset, and Sorry, Claire, that you have to deal with that, but you definitely have my respect. So who better to express their thoughts on the new series than the creators themselves? The casting director of the series, Carmel Cochrane, uh, stated, I don't like the idea of things feeling tokenistic, and that is patronizing. She doesn't have red hair, but I cast Jodi because I categorically don't think there's anyone who could play our Anne Boleyn better. She's fierce, complex, and passionate, and radiates all the qualities we believe and possessed. And then, if you're going to have Jodi, would we then say that we're not conscious of the fact that she is Black? That seems dangerous. You're assuming that people don't have their own identity. In the casting process, I had to say to some of the actors, you're not here to tick a box. This isn't a Benetton advert. For Miranda Kaufman, the author of the book Black Tudors, The Untold Story, which is also in development for TV, oh my gosh, you can't wait, people who are up in arms about this kind of casting are completely ignorant about the Black presence in the period. John Blank was a Black trumpeter under Henry VII and Henry VIII, although he had left court before Anne came in, and Elizabeth I had a black boy in her retinue and received two embassies from Morocco. There were black Tudor sailors, a silk weaver, a needle maker, a seamstress. The black Tudors weren't aristocracy or gentry in the court setting. Uh, In the court setting, you were more likely to encounter them as servants, but they were indeed there. And it kind of just goes back to what I said in the beginning, how there's this real like false narrative with Europe at a time being like a white utopia. And I don't know when that lie formed, but it is a very big lie. And people need to stop thinking that way because it's harmful and it's dangerous. And I'm going to share this last bit from the article with you. So as for this series, it feels confidently feminist with the camera rarely strained from Turner Smith. She was murdered by her husband. It wasn't just a downfall, says Fable's founder Faye Ward. We want people to think about her and what happened to her in a different way. People don't refer to Henry VIII as a domestic abuser or a psychopath. The series also stars Paapa Isiedu, a British actor of Ghanaian heritage who stars in the BBC hit, I May Destroy You, which if you haven't seen that, definitely check that out. It's fantastic. And uh, Issiadu will be portraying Anne's brother, George. And fun fact, he is the first black actor to be cast as Hamlet in the Royal Shakespeare Company. Personally, I would love like a queer production of uh, Henry VIII, where like the entire cast is played by women. And I think that would be so cool. Like, I kind of imagine, uh, like, Tilda Swinton playing Henry VIII. Like, how cool would that be? Of course, Tilda Swinton could play Henry VIII. And it'd be be a good time. And I think somebody needs to make that movie, like, immediately. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this uh, podcast episode up. Um, But I am going to end it with a question that... I I see asked quite a bit, and I am definitely guilty of asking it in the past. And uh, that question is, did Henry truly, ever truly love Anne? And I don't see a whole lot of relevance in that question, but I understand why people ask it. I do. Uh, we know how it ended. Like, you do not go from... I don't think it's possible to go from a genuine love to slicing off your lover's head like you just don't but uh, you just don't go there but I think Henry was a romantic in the sense where he knew how to express himself in a loving way and understood the effect he had on women like he knew how to make a woman feel special and whether it was true or not I don't think it was but that was just his game like Henry was a renaissance fuck boy and I think he he loved what Anne was expressing to him and the ideas that Anne was exposing him to. He was intrigued and he likely saw something in Anne that he had not seen in other people, especially other women. She challenged him in ways he was never challenged and he wanted that. He wanted her. But do, do I think he ever loved her? No, uh, but I don't think he but I think he loved what she could do for him. A lot of portrayals of Anne present her as being a cunning, ambitious woman who would stop at nothing to be queen. It is interesting how we frame these qualities in women as being deviant and cruel, while not applying those same thoughts to men with similar qualities. Even today, we see an ambitious woman as nasty and calculating. I think Anne was a complex individual who was brought down by forces. I don't want to say greater than her because they weren't, but by domineering forces. And in the end, what it really comes down to is she was just yet another woman who was who was silenced. So about two years ago exactly two years ago actually maybe give a shake a couple of weeks I went to London for the first time ever Uh, so right before the pandemic that was a smart move and the first place I went to was Westminster Abbey and I saw Elizabeth I's grave and that was a pretty pretty intense experience I walked around her grave like three times and I prob I took a picture. I know I wasn't supposed to, but I had to. And after that is when I went to the National Portrait Gallery, uh, which is where Anne Boleyn's portrait is. And I was just, I was blown away. The, her portrait is still like in such like impeccable, like great shape. And the colors were so vivid. I was just, for how old it was, I was impressed at the quality, like and how it looked and it just took my breath away. I loved seeing her. And of course the next day I had to go to the Tower of London and I had to just, I had to stand where she stood. I stood at her gravesite and it was a, it was a great experience. It was a compelling experience. Uh, yeah, I want to go back to London so bad. I think the next time that I'm in England, uh, post post pandemic, I will try to make my way to Heaver Castle. So I really hope you enjoyed this surprise episode on Anne Boleyn. So it was more history than I thought. I thought it was actually just going to be me talking about uh, media portrayals, but it kind of turned into something else. Like I think I mentioned media, but I also mentioned history and it kind of just, it's honestly, I just know a shit ton about Anne Boleyn. Like she's one of my favorite monarchs. I think I have top three favorite monarchs right now and Anne Boleyn's one of them. And the other one is Ludwig II of Bavaria. So the Bavarian queer mystery. And uh, of course, Empress Matilda, Lady of the English. If you want to say hello or share your support, you can always follow me at Finding History Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And until we meet again, I let's see. I wish you a most happy Wednesday. And most happy, I don't even think I mentioned it, uh, most happy was Anne Boleyn's motto when she became queen. So a most happy Wednesday to you all. And until we meet again, stay safe and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.